Welcome to Famous Lost Words, what we call a deep dive into the archive, courtesy of the master archivist himself, Mr. Tom Jokic. Tom? Christopher, you know how some artists embrace their legacy, and some artists, because they consider themselves kind of still thriving, still creating, that they really don't want to talk about the past. Mm. If you can divide artists into two categories, that might be two ways to start. This artist that we're going to be talking to this week, Lionel Richie, totally embraces everything about his legacy. He's so appreciative. And there's a couple of points here where people talk to him about the importance of his music. And some people even kind of turn his music towards Lionel to help Lionel himself during a rough time. You're going to hear that a little bit later on. Mm. It's so good and so interesting. And boy, you want, what's the word? ebullient you want a joyful person who's so <laughs> happy this is the guy he's so great in this so that's lionel richie this week in an extraordinary conversation on famous lost words and what else have we got tom christopher in episode 102 that's our second episode of our first season we featured an interview with myself and Mick Jagger from 2001, and it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I knew that we, you know, we have a lot of other Rolling Stones clips, including Mick Jagger clips, and we've played a lot of them for you on this very show previously. But I just found out that we have this interview, which I'd heard about, and it's Mick Jagger in conversation with Roger Ashby live in Barbados from 1986, and it is great. Somebody just randomly sent it to me a few weeks ago. I had one listen to it, and you like it. I know you do, because you went came back to me and said, this is pretty good. Like, this is a good interview, even though it's only five minutes long. So, it's Mick Jagger in conversation, and it's just before the release of a Rolling Stones album from 1986. I think you'll love it. Oh. Lionel Richie, All Night Long from 1983. Tom, this week we have another classic Marilyn Dennis interview. You thought I was going to say another classic Journey interview, but no. (laughs) With one of the most charming and talented artists of the 1970s and beyond, Lionel Richie. This chat's from the early 2000s and covers lots of ground, partly due to the contribution of listeners who called in with their questions for Lionel at the time. Right. Now, this time period was the beginning of a decline in Richie's career sales-wise, but his popularity as a performer never waned. And a 2012 album of hits done with country artists put him back on the top of the charts. In her usual way, Marilyn gets the answer she's looking for, whether it's on soft-toss questions like Lionel's favorite songs from his repertoire, or more sensitive topics like his divorce. She gets to the latter by asking about the growing power of tabloid culture at the time. Yes, and Lionel has some very strong opinions about it all. We are now in information hell, if you will. You know, we people are dying to know more, more, more. Too much information. Yeah, and I, if, I'm afraid that what's going to happen with all of this great information is that w- there will be no more heroes. Mm. Because there's got to be something private that stays private that we don't know about, that we we don't want to know what's happening in the bedrooms. We, I don't want to know. Mm-hmm. But, but in this case, what happened with me was, I'm from Alabama, so it's hard enough going through a divorce privately uh-huh. without having it discussed or reviewed in the press. It... it, it it taught me a great deal. I mean, I have a tougher skin because of it. Yeah. But I'm also in public life. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I had to just go, okay. But there's a point now when you start seeing a person in the backyard of their home in their pool 
and you can see nude shots of them if somebody can get across the fence and take a shot of you. So it, I think with this information now, and of course now they download it on the... Oh, yeah, they got it all over the Not only across now. town, yeah. but it's on the... But you, have a, you had a daughter with Brenda, am I right? Nicole. Nicole. How, and how old is she? She's 19 years old. Whoa, what's she up to? <laughs> let me tell you now that this is my, this is my hip consultant now. Ah. You know, Dad, you're not going to wear that, are you? Or, Dad, put this on. Or, mm-hmm. or, and also, I'm getting the fact that another thing's happening. As I take her out to lunch and dinner now, all of my friends are going... So, uh, Lionel, who's the babe? <laughs> Excuse me? That's my daughter. Thank That's you, guys. That's my daughter. Yeah, you know. But she, she weathered well through all of that. Well, only because we did not make that an issue. Yeah, that's good. That was the good thing. And, and I must say that after all of these years... My ex and I are now in good uh, spirits. That's great. So it's it's good. That's excellent. Mary, listening to Chum FM in Toronto, has a question. Hi, Mary. Hi. What's your question? Um, just wanted to know if there was something that you had to change in your whole career. What would it be? That's a good question, Mary. You know what? I I think it would be. I think I missed the the opportunity to have the farewell tour for the Commodores with the Commodores. Mm-hmm. I I left, and we didn't get a chance to do that big. I'm leaving kind of thing or we're breaking up or whatever the case because we didn't know we were breaking up we just I always thought it was just going to be to blow off some steam for a minute we'll take a couple of months off do other projects yeah and we'll realize that we can't let this happen and we'll get back together by the time I got to the second album Mm -hmm. all night long the rocket was off the launching pad it was gone but I, I always regretted the fact that we didn't put the period is in, there a reunion in, in progress at all? Well, to tell you the truth about it right now, we have only two guys left of the original Commodores in the Commodores. And the rest of these guys, there's four of us that are out of the group completely. Mm. So we have to, first of all, get them back in. And then secondly, the farthest away is Ronald LaPrade, who's living in Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, wow. But he's doing fabulous over yeah. there. But I think I think what I'm going to do is on this world tour yeah. that I'm going to pull off in a minute, okay. I'm going to bring the Commodores on stage as a surprise to s- somewhere in town or mm-hmm. somewhere in the world. Okay. I'm afraid that if I get them on stage, the problem will then be getting them off the stage. Because <laughs> I think once the lights hit them again, they'll, they'll know. All right. Well, we look forward to that. I hope that happens. That would be just great for all of us. Yeah. And to my knowledge, they never did get around to that reunion. By the way, that is Nicole Ritchie that they were referring to earlier, who eventually became briefly more famous than her father, especially because of her reality TV show with Paris Hilton. Oh, the irony. (laughs) (laughs) Lionel talks about his favorite songs, Commodores and Solo. What is your favorite song of yours? What that do you is like? so difficult. Oh, do you want me to divide a little bit? How about the favorite Commodore, Commodore song? Commodore, there we go, there we go. And let's do, let's do your solo first, and then let's go into the Commodores. My solo stuff, would, I mean, it's got to be All Night Long and Hello, you know, yeah. as far as that's concerned. Um, um, I think probably We Are The World was the most meaningful song because of the fact that it did so much good. When I wrote that song with Michael, yeah. it, was, it was, I didn't even realize that it was going to be quite the... Huge. It was amazingly mm-hmm. huge. And I remember Michael calling me on the phone one day and said, turn on the television set. And there, they showed split screen of four countries. Uh, there was London, um, New York, mm-hmm. L.A., and Tokyo. And they were all singing at various parts of their day and night, We Are the World. They mm-hmm. were showing how, by the time it all went around the world, people were in the streets singing this song. It's amazing. It is amazing. It really, it really went beyond... It's like having a child and the child becomes, you know, you don't know what 
this is going to be. Well, you guys did a lot of good there, too. And I know there's a Michael Jackson connection we're going to talk about a little later on. Good. Favorite song, Commodores? <sighs> Easy like Sunday morning. That's what I wanted you to say. <laughs> you know that a record is is has gotten to you when people want to hum the guitar solo. <laughs> <laughs> now they get down to that and they That's hum right. the guitar solo. I am telling you, Thomas McClary should just go on his own and just be the guitarist forever, playing one note. Zoop, you know, it's it. so funny. Our producer Tom just said he should have won a Grammy just for that. That's excellent. <laughs> Here's what I want to ask you. I'm ready. The question is. When you are in the studio and you finish a song, how do you know when the song is finished? You know, that is probably one of the hardest questions because the answer is, I don't know. You it's, don't know. You just know. It's um, There's a moment when you say it's done. Mm -hmm. And there's always something you can do extra. I've learned a, a great line from Quincy Jones who said, every time I wanted to add something new, I said, Quincy, I, I think I want to put something else on the record. He said, do it on stage. Save it for the live Save show. Save it for the live show. Yeah, that's a good idea. And, right. and it's true because it'll when you get bored on stage and you want to find the extra thing to play, play mm -hmm. it on the live show. But you will find that it. How do I know? If, there are only twelve notes on the piano. Mm. There are only twelve notes. This is thirty years later. How am I able to? I don't know. How do songwriters write anymore? I don't know. It's just that the melody comes up and everyone goes, "That's a new song," and you go. That's a new song? <laughs> How did that happen? There's only 12 notes. Uh, you know, so, yeah. so you don't really know. I, I just know that it's time to turn around and say, put it out. Mix it. It's over. Do you ever go back very quickly, because Giselle's waiting patiently on the phone, do you ever go back and listen to the other songs? Not that we think that they need to be I, retooled, oh yeah. but you go back and, you know, listen to a song that you wrote for the Commodores or yourself and go, gee, you know, if I just would have done that. I give you a perfect example. Okay. There's Easy is a perfect example. Really? We left off two sections of guitars. Ah! And James Carmichael, I left town because we were going on tour, and I said, James, would you add the other two parts on for me and leave? Mm -hmm. Well, he didn't have time. He just mixed it as it was. Well, I gave him grief about that for two and a half to three months, thinking that he has ru he's ruined the song. Oh. Well, when it became a hit, no, no big deal. <laughs> you forgot. <laughs> you don't remember. It's I okay. forgot. You know? <laughs> I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> He is so likable in this interview, and he's right. Easy was his best song with the Commodores, and that guitar solo, that guy alone, should have won a Grammy Award just for that do-do-do-do, that part there. I also like the great <laughs> advice that he got from Quincy Jones about adding extra stuff to songs, right? Lionel wanted to add more stuff, more stuff, and Quincy said, no, no, leave it for the live shows because then it really spices it up a little bit for the audience. I love that piece of advice. Hmm. We get a surprise answer to the question of what he listens to during tough times. Laura's on the phone. What can we do for you? Well, first of all, I just want to say I've been a really long-time fan of Lionel Richie's. Hi, Lionel. How are you, sweetheart? Oh, my God. I can't believe it. Anyway, um, I just wanted to let you know that um, your Can't Slow Up a Down album mm. with uh, the song Love Will Find a Way, uh, yeah. it got me through some really difficult times in my teens, and I always thought that if I ever met you, I would say thank you so oh, much. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, I'll, tell you, I, I, I'll tell you a funny story that happened to me, uh, speaking of those songs. Uh, when I was going through my tough time, I had a dear friend of mine from Alabama to call me on the phone, and he said, I'm going to send you some inspirational tapes that will help you get through this very tough period of your, mm. your life. And I said, please, send me. I would love to have something to listen to. He sent me my catalog. Oh, my God. Oh, you're kidding. What a great <laughs> and idea. And he said, he said, it's your time to listen to your words because 
we've we've all been able to get through tough times dependent on, on your words, words. Yeah. he said now it's your turn to listen That's and it was a great great my I, I i cried on songs that i'd written before that never took it to meaning mm. like it meant at that period that i was going through still to come lionel faces the reality of what his music means to his fans and talks about walking through the halls of motown for the first time Welcome back to Famous Lost Words as we continue with Lionel Richie and Marilyn Dennis. That's right, Christopher. This interview is from February 4th, 2001, and Lionel is talking to Marilyn to promote his sixth solo album, Renaissance. And during this interview, Lionel spent a lot of time talking to his fans. Kelly's uh, on the phone. Hey, Kelly. Hi. Hi, you're talking to Lionel Richie live. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for putting me on. No problem. What's your question, please? Well, I just wanted to say thank you for Lionel. Because the day that I first heard Angel on the radio was with Marilyn. It was October the 12th. That is my sister's birthday. Oh. And she is truly my angel on earth because cool. he gave me her, trans- her kidney oh. as a transplant wow. two years ago. And <laughs> there's no words to express. Now, now, you know what? I have to tell you something. <laughs> the, the, the wonderful thing about the house songs are interpreted now when i wrote angel Mm. i never would have thought of how it would affect or impact someone else's life you have a very special person there in your life i tell you that is such a great story i have a whole new outlook on angel oh that's great that's a really nice story too well thank you so much give her a hug and a kiss for me too would you please i definitely will she's listening and she's saying where you're at the moment oh wonderful story that's that's really nice story Okay, we're going to play Stuck on You. You have a little background doesn't from that, 1984. Doesn't that, doesn't that story just lump your throat up right there? I yeah. Going, why am I lumping up here a little bit here? Big time. Okay, Stuck on You. Let's just segue. No, here. I'm trying to. Yeah, I'm, so trying, I'm trying go. to get these tears. I'm trying to hold myself uh, back. So Stuck on You, 1984. What's the background of the song? Stuck on You is a, a very interesting... I'm in Tuskegee, Alabama, visiting home. And uh, I decide that I'm going to drive up to Auburn University. And on the way back, someone said, let's stop off and have breakfast right here at this truck stop. Mm-hmm. Best breakfasts in the world are at truck stops. You got You it. have to know that. I walk in the door, and there's a guy with a cowboy hat and cowboy shoes so pointed, I felt he was in pain. But he, <laughs> but he wasn't. He, was, he came over to me, and he said, Lionel, Lionel, I want to tell you, buddy. He said, I fell in love with this girl. I'm stuck on her. I'm stuck <laughs> on her, boy. And, I mean, I never would have in a million years thought of that phrase as being something but it just stuck with me that this guy said I'm stuck on a line stuck on I'm stuck on I'm on the line I'm telling you I've had people walk up to me and I, I said this story on, on my stage show yeah 240 pound man walks up to me and says uh Lionel I've made love to you many times boy. <laughs> And I said, that, that's a lie. You know, that's a lie. But he said, no, no, I mean, you, you I know. I know what you're saying. What I'm saying. I do. Stuck on you. Got this feeling down deep in my soul that I just can't lose. Guess I'm on my way. Stuck on you, Lionel Richie from 1984. Great song and a great story. Time for a little history. Going back to when the Commodores first walked in the door at Motown Records. Francis is on the phone for you, Lionel. Hi, Francis. Hi, Marilyn. How Hi, are you? How are you, sweetheart? Thank you. Hi, Lionel. It's so nice to talk to you. Uh, 
What's your question? My question to Lionel uh, is, uh, would he do another collaboration with Michael Jackson, one of my favorites as well mm-hmm. as you, Lionel? And I wondered if you ever planned on working with Michael again. Well, the thing about it is right now, Michael is finishing up his album and I'm on tour. The, we are probably going to do something together because we have been trying our best to get together and do this. But now that he's turned into Papa Jackson... It's hard to have that free time like he used to, but uh, that is something I do want to do again. That's great. Now, you've known Michael since he was how old? Seven years old. Unbelievable. That is unbelievable. I'm so happy that he finally made it to 40. I just, when I say made it, every, he kept saying, you guys are the old guys, aren't you? And I kept saying, yes, Michael, we are. But finally... <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to talk to you about uh, the whole uh, Motown moving to Los Angeles and your first day at what Mot- you call Motown, Motown University. University. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, you have to understand, I was a fan. Uh, and uh, being a kid, the front row of every Smokey Robinson concert or Temptations concert, and all of a sudden, here I am walking in the front door of the studio uh, on Famosa Street in, in L.A., mm-hmm. and there, and there's Marvin Gaye, there's Smokey Robinson, there's the Temptations, they were all in the room, and the guy came in, and they said, Hi, little brother. Welcome to Motown. Wow. And that was hard stop right there. How did you, fe- how did you feel, though? Like, did you, did you feel that, oh, what am I doing here? Or, or no. I've really made it, and no. this is great. To show you the power of signing the Motown deal was it didn't phase us one moment that, that we were not going to make it. We signed the Motown contract. In other words, everybody that signed the contract, we thought at that time, was going to make it. We Mm -hmm. didn't realize that hundreds of groups would come in and sign. They just didn't make it. But we just knew that the Commodores were going to make. We were around this kind of talent. And the interesting thing that you say before we take Layla's call is the fact that you... Marvin didn't really read music. Marvin didn't read music. Norman Whitfield, who wrote all of the Temptations uh, songs. Barry Gordy did not read music. Smokey Robinson, did, I mean, I'm telling these guys, the talent was in Can You Hum It? Mm. If you can hum it, the world can hum it. Does Lionel Richie uh, read music? Not now. Quincy Jones told me a, a wonderful story. Henry Mancini called me on the phone and said, I want to meet with you, Lionel, and you and me and Sammy Conn, a few of the guys want to meet with you. What they want to do was welcome me in. And, yeah. and I thought, oh, my God, they're going to give me a quiz on songwriting. And I, and I called Quincy on the phone and said, you've got to teach me some music. And he said, I'll teach you music the day you retire. Excellent. Right now, you don't know you're breaking the rules. That's great. Great advice once again from Quincy Jones. And about the Motown years, it's funny Janet Jackson had much the same experience meeting Marvin Gaye and Smokey Robinson, but she was a child at the time. You can imagine Lionel Richie signing to Motown, thinking, hoping that it was going to lead to the big time, and it did for him, but it didn't for all of them. And he's just wide-eyed, and there he is um, seeing Marvin Gaye and Smokey Robinson and so many of the other uh, big artists, including Diana Ross, who he worked with, on Endless Love, one of the top songs from 1981. Lionel Richie on Famous Lost Words. Still to come, a fantastic 1986 chat with Mick Jagger. It wasn't planned at all. We were in Barbados, and Mick was there too. You'll hear a rare instance of Mick Jagger being very relaxed. Plus, one of our favorite bands, Christopher, Split Ends, where Tim Finn aims a very funny backhanded compliment at his brother Neil Finn. That's next on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Still to come, Split Ends and The Kinks, two of Christopher's favorites. But first, Mick Jagger. I've been walking Central Park, singing after dog. People think I'm crazy. 
The Rolling Stones from 1978 and Miss You featuring the vocals of Mick Jagger. Go ahead, Christopher. Tom, the beauty of this show, the beauty of Famous Lost Words, is not only do you hear interviews from everyone from, say, Gene Simmons to Buffy St. Marie, although we would never put them together um, <laughs> because she'd kick his ass. Um, <laughs> where, where else can you hear that, right? Right. But you'll also hear the biggest stars of all time at ease in various settings from backstage to hotel rooms to, in this case, a studio in Barbados. Now, Roger Ashby is such an engaging interviewer that he ever so casually gets the best out of his subjects, including here, Mick Jagger. We don't hear the pompous Mick or the defensive Mick. We just get an artist who's relaxing for a chat in and around time spent with family, friends, and doing some spontaneous recording. Now, Tom, as I learned when I interviewed Bill Wyman of the Stones, when you arrive and there's an England-Australia soccer match on the TV, you're going to be a while, and you might as well lead with it, regardless of relevance. With Mick, it's all about the cricket. Okay, we're sitting in Eddie Grant's Blue Wave Studios in Barbados, and with us is Mick Jagger. And before I ask you anything else, I've got to ask you about your, uh, your reaction to today's cricket match. <laughs> it's pretty bad for England, but <laughs> they lost. Um, well, anyway, it was a fun day. Um, all the English people flew over here and watched them slowly going from white to pink. It's always amusing. <laughs> we were talking to the cab driver on the way out, and he said it was no surprise. He said he knew the West Indies was going to win before the match even started. Yeah, well, England won the last one, though, in Trinidad, uh, about two weeks ago. So, you know, there, there was a chance. You're quite a big cricket fan, I understand. Yeah, it's fun. It's, it's a fun game down here. You know, I like soccer as well. So aside from the beautiful weather, what brings you to Barbados? Well, I come really to... Um, my family was down here, and, um, you know, to get away from the winter, which is sort of ending now. And um, I sort of came to see some friends. And uh, while I was down here, I thought I'd check out the studio. So I went in and wrote a couple of songs and um, put them down. <laughs> so is this kind of a demo material for something we're going to hear in the future? Yeah, I guess so. It's just out of my head. I mean, I like to, when I write songs, I was just messing with the guitar, and I thought, well, why don't I come into Eddie's and put them down on tape and see what they sound like. Yeah. I'm, I'm a real novice when it comes to studios, but this one just blew me away when I saw it. 52 tracks, I think it is, this studio. Yeah, it's top top line studio. I don't know how much you want to reveal about the, the, the solo album that you will have coming out in the future, but it, the kind of material that you're doing in here, is it is it, um, is it basic rock and roll? or, or? Just, No, I don't know what it is. <laughs> At this point <laughs> of the game, it's anything. You know, I just write a song at home and I just came in to check the studio out. I'm not really doing anything very serious. I mean, the Stones album's not even out as we speak. It's not out yet, mm -hmm. so... You know, it's next week, premature. I understand. Yeah, it's a bit premature to talk about next thing as far as I'm concerned. I'm, you know, I'm interested to see what you think of the Stones album. It's a really good album. I think it's pretty hot. Um, well, the, the, the single is great. The Harlem Shuffle is, yeah. is excellent. There's some good, really good rocks tracks on the album too, which is, you know, original material. Um, there's, there's a couple of tunes that I remember. Like one, it's one's called One Hit from the Body, and there's another one called Dirty Work, which is the title of the album. Mm -hmm. And another one called Winning Ugly, Back to Zero. This, this is a pretty mixed bag, but it's, it's a real rocking album. And the album's been delayed, too. I remember reading last fall it was coming out, uh, you know, January, then February. And uh, now. It was it was ready in November. We finished it in November. And um, it's it's not a very good time. You know, if you unless you have it by Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, it, it kind of is bad. So, I mean, I think CBS wanted to wait until mm -hmm. this time when everything was there and everything was in place and... Um, so we didn't mind to wait another couple of months. 
Why did you do Harlem Shuffle? Does it have a special meaning to somebody in the group or yourself or was it a song you always liked? Yeah, it was a, a tune that we always liked. I mean, I remember hearing it many, many years ago. We used to play in this little club called The Scene Club and the record was a hit in England. I don't think it was a hit anywhere else by this group called, this duo called Bob, Bob and Earl. Earl, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I mean, I remember it kind of well. And we never ever did it on stage or anything. We just sort of dug it out. And it, it worked well. What happened was that people listened to the album and and that's the one they picked up on. And I think that's kind of like, in a way, what single material is. Oftentimes, you think, well, I, it wasn't my first choice, but I mean, we kind of, you know, I think that people hear, when they hear it, it's, well, something instant is probably the thing to go with, right? Saying, well, if you hear this five times, you're going to really love it. Yeah, yeah. And I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time that a, a, a single has been released from an album that is not your own composition. <laughs> I'm not very good at statistics. Uh, maybe, if you say so. I mean, many. Who really it, cares, who right? Who cares? I mean, you know. I mean, most people don't know it was a hit. It's such a long time ago. It's like 25 years ago this record was out. I think it only reached number 94 or something on Billboard when yeah. it was out. But it, it was a hit in Toronto, by the way. It was a hit in yeah. England. Yeah. It was a big hit. It's a song that we all knew. You remember the Elma Combo? What's your recollection of playing the Elma Combo got, in Toronto back? It was nine years ago now. I've got other recollections of that gig apart from just playing the gig. Um, yeah, Nothing was, you want to tell us about? Yeah, well, I mean, it was all pretty public record. Uh, but uh, <laughs> those hotels and being stuck in them and all the police and, and Margaret Trudeau. <laughs> Whatever happened to her? Um, I don't know. Nobody knows. Disappeared. Um, so uh, I, I remember the gig. There was a couple of good gigs and, you know, they're on that album and I mean, it was good it was fun but i'm afraid it was rather marred by other things mm -hmm. that was unfortunate i remember when uh, it, it was actually myself who was first contacted at, at chum radio when skippy snare called from uh, montreal yeah. and then peter rudge came in and yeah. Uh, yeah, it was quite an event yeah no, it was a good time there was some confusion as to what you said when you received your grammy award on tv maybe you can explain exactly what you did say yeah i said um on the grammys um Thanks to everyone that was that stuck by us and all that. And the ones that took the piss, That's it. the joke's on you. I mean, take the piss, take the mick, you know, um, joke. Thought you were a joke. Who, who criticized you? Yeah, yeah, them. like, they laughed at you, you know, yeah. laughed at you. And so, and I said, take the piss, and they, they beeped it in some places. Bleeped it or whatever. No, we, we no. heard it. No, they, they didn't in some places, but in little, some places we did. But no one understood it, and I just sort of... Everyone, I mean, it is very British, but we were in England, so, you know, I was very British that night. That's Mick Jagger in conversation with Roger Ashby from March of 1986. Uh, by the way, Roger has his own oldie show on the iHeartRadio app. It's simply called the Roger Ashby Oldie Show on iHeartRadio, okay? So, back then in 1986, at the radio station, meaning Chum FM in Toronto, we did a series of annual broadcasts from Barbados, and we did that for 30 years, ending in 2016. And that Mick Jagger chat was from the very first year in 1986. And it's funny, I joined the station that year, but about a few months later. So I wasn't around for that, but I'd always heard about that interview. And I always saw pictures from that interview, but I'd never heard it 
until just a few days ago. Wow. Great content in that chat, including his references to the time that they were in Toronto to record the album Love You Live at the famed Elma Combo nightclub, but it was also the time of Keith's very famous arrest on heroin charges, which is what mm. Mick is referring to a little earlier when he says that was not a great time for us, but you know, the album was good, but that generally speaking wasn't uh, wasn't a great time. Also interesting that Mick talks about Margaret Trudeau here because that was definitely one of the headlines her association with the band and Ronnie Wood in particular. And the album that Mick was talking about there, Dirty Work, would yield one big song, and that was this. Yeah, 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 the That's Harlem Shuffle, the Rolling Stones from 1986. And they also talked about that song in that interview. And that would be the second last Stones song to ever hit the top 10. And the last one was Mixed Emotions. I was going to ask. Okay, there you go. Yeah. That was Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones on Famous Lost Words. From 1980, that split ends and I Got You on Famous Lost Words. Tom, one of the best responses that we have received for any interview we've run was for Neil Finn, talking about my favorite topic, songwriting. (laughs) Well, it's time to spread the joy around and acknowledge Neil's brilliant older brother, Tim, the founder of Split Ends and an on-and-off member of Crowded House as well. right. Uh, I'm not sure of the date, but the interview, with sadly only two short clips, is in the wake of their True Colors album, the fifth album they released, and the one that was their breakthrough. It went to number one in their homeland of New Zealand, also in Australia, and charted in the U.S. and Canada as well on the strength of that single, I Got You. Tim talks about the band moving from cult status to mainstream. On a basic level, in the club scene in Australia, is is pretty healthy, and a, a band starting out... Uh, can get reasonably okay money just doing the clubs, you know. So, so it's not like in England where you, where you lose money, you know, to tour. Or even in America now, for example, we're touring, we're, we're losing money, you know, because it costs so much to tour. So it's good in that point of view. The radio is pretty good. The radio is pretty open. FM is just starting there. It's like, you know, the first FM stations have been on the air for about six months. Mm-hmm. But uh, AM radio, whatever you want to call it, Top 40 radio, whatever, um, is reasonably okay you know to us they've become great i mean because with true colors success i mean we, we became uh, well, i don't know it's funny when they did a survey for um what people wanted to hear and it was like us and pink floyd were, were quite up quite up there you know ahead of the bunch and, and that surprised us because we were a cult item for so long we mm-hmm. were sort of band that people acknowledged and sort of had a reasonably healthy respect for but never saw as a mainstream band and then all of a sudden we, we came out with an album that was at number one for 10 weeks, you know. So, I mean, it's, it shocked us and it shocked the industry. It's quite good. Very interesting background there to what it's like for being a live touring band in Australia. And, you know, we heard that same thing uh, from In Excess in a, in a late uh, career interview uh, with In Excess talking about those days of, you know, hitting the road in Australia and that it was lucrative, but it was also very, very taxing. It's the geography as much as anything else, and yeah. I think it's very much like our home and native land. Yep. Bands get seasoned so well when they have to, to you know, grow up in places like Canada and Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, 
It's an entirely different scene. I remember seeing Midnight Oil from Australia, and it was one of the best live shows that I have ever seen. Yeah. Um, simply because they had honed their craft for so many years in so many beer halls yeah. all over Australia. That's for sure. Here's a little bit of brotherly love from Tim. The single, mm-hmm. I Got You. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's one of Neil's, and it's uh, a little ripper. I can say quite objectively, the melody is uh, brilliant, I think, in the chorus. And, uh, you know, he just fluked it. I mean, uh, the little sod. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, brotherly love there. Yeah, well, you know. (laughs) But uh, it's uh, it's a good one. And and his lyrics are nice. You know, it's it's the the I got you, but I don't sort of thing, the paranoia that exists in a lot of relationships. And he's he's captured that feeling really well. Mm -hmm. The line that people go for is, you know, I don't know why sometimes I get frightened. That's the one that people remember. It sticks in their brain. And that's what they ask for when they call in on the phones. Yeah, play that one, uh, the frightened song or whatever. Oh, that's hilarious. He calls the song I Got You a ripper. It's a ripper, and and he says that Neil completely fluked out with that one. I love that sense of humor. And you know, Christopher, like you said, there's only two clips here, but I definitely wanted to play it because Tim Finn does deserve some attention for sure. And also, I just love the sense of humor of that. And that band was, you know, had quite a sense of humor and quite a great presentation of themselves as a band with all their makeup and everything. And uh, yeah, they were great. That's Split ends, Tim Finn, Neil Finn, famous last words. Still to come, a great witty British band. But were they too witty and too British for North American audiences? That's yet to come when Famous Last Words continues. I met her in the club down in Ottawa Where you drink champagne and it tastes just like cherry cola Lola, what a great song. The Kings from 1970. (laughs) Man, I love that song. I know. And we're going to talk quite a bit about that in a few minutes. But go ahead, Christopher, as we talk about the Kinks on Famous Lost Words. Tom, the British invasion is one of the most clearly defined moments in rock and roll history, with an influence that is still felt today. If you look at the charts of the time, you can see that what came before was one thing. And what followed? was something almost completely different in sound and look. The Brits may have been reimagining American blues and rock and roll, but for those of us born in that era, it was all new. As the Stones bassist Bill Wyman said to me, the British invasion sent the Bobbies, Messrs. V, Vinton, and Sherman, packing. (laughs) The hierarchy was clear, too, with the Beatles and Stones atop the pyramid, and just below them, the Who and the Kinks. Please, let the arguments begin on musical influence, originality, songwriting, etc. Just have at it, folks. Yeah. In the UK, the Kinks had 17 top 20 singles and five top 10 albums. And while they had hits in North America, a few key things hurt their overall achievement there. A less than major label in Pi Records behind them. Yeah. The bad blood between founding brothers Ray and Dave Davies that often spilled onto the stage. Oh, for sure. Resulting, among other things, in a four-year American Federation of Musicians touring ban in the U.S. just as they were hitting their stride in 1965. Wow. And as well, a certain, let's call it a quintessential Englishness about their songs the very thing at the heart of their brilliance. Right. This interview that we have is with lead singer and songwriter Ray Davies, and it is wonderful. I just devoured this. So thank <laughs> you for digging this up, Tom. 
he talks about some of those songs we made reference to along with a couple of other things that were on his mind. Yep. And if only, if only there was more of this one. But let's start with the name of the band. Personally, when I started, I hated it. I hated the name. You know, I, I suggested it for a joke. We went on shows and we were bottom of the bill. And we wanted to have a sort of, a, we had a, a name that would stand out. So we thought of K, because K is one of the most commercial letters in the alphabet. In the end, they, we ended up with that name, and I, and I hated it after that. Oh, imagine hating such a great name, the Kinks. <laughs> All right. The Kinks had to find their way out from under a huge shadow. Well, when we started out, you know, the Beatles had been popular for a couple of years, and they all wanted us to make sort of Beatle records. And we weren't totally happy with it. And we wanted to go in and make something that was we thought was our sound and what we wanted to play. And in the end, we made a record called You Really Got Me, which Dave sort of, had, I think, had a new sound. He made a new sound for a guitar. You know, he sort of started that sort of fuzz sound. And we, we made that record. Great song, The Kings from 1964, and you really got me really a punk sound when you think about it, and that's well over 10 years yeah. before punk came along. Great song. I love that. And also, All Day and All of the Night. Yeah. Yeah. Ray looks back at an incredibly productive period of songwriting that started with Well-Respected Man. Yeah, I wrote it after a tour of America. I remember that, and I was on holiday, and I just did it. I wrote it in an afternoon. I, I quite like that record. Any particular inspiration why you wrote the record? No, it's just a few people that annoyed me. So I thought I'd write about them. <laughs> I wonder if the people who inspired that song knew that they did, and I wonder if they are sh ashamed of that fact or proud of that fact. <laughs> I love that song. That was one of the first songs I ever played on the guitar. My cousin John and I used to sit in the in the living room and play "Well Respected Man." Yeah, <laughs> it was just excellent, and it just it felt so liberating because you got to be sarcastic and dark, and you yes. know, yeah, yeah. Those songs are so good, Christopher, because they are both smart and snarky, right? They have they have like such intelligence, but there's a real punk kind of attitude towards things. And you talked about it also as a as a uniquely British sound. Well, I think that's what drew people to them. Yeah, was the sort of poignancy of the storytelling. I mean, it was just so spot on. But it also may have had the effect of being a little too strange for others to take in. It didn't have an easy-to-digest kind of quality to it. But they still have a hell of a legacy, let's face it. Mm -hmm. The satire was so spot on in one of Davy's greatest songs, Sunny Afternoon. And Sunny Afternoon was because I was going through a hard time. The song Sunny Afternoon is about someone who, who has everything taken away from him. And he's only left with his beer and his afternoon he's sitting in the sun enjoying it all because that's all he's got oh man what a, what a song and you know there was a you know there was a, uh, a stage play in London called Sunny Afternoon that was a, a chronicle uh, of the Kinks career and the lives of its members and it was wonderful and at the end of the show they, and by the way the actors they had were incredible singers what they did is they gave a little concert at the end as if it was a Kinks show I took my daughter, because she's a Kinks fan, too, so the few oh, years ago oh in London. Boy, she's well-raised, um, and that's the last time I'm going <laughs> to say that, okay? Don't let it go to your head. Now, 
I think we've talked about this before. I once saw Ray Davies, and it was a two-man show. So it was him and yeah. another guitarist, and it was a storyteller-type session where he would just tell the stories. You know, him and his brother writing all day and all of the night, and you really got me. And at the end of it, he'd rip into the song, and it'd just be like this euphoric burst of energy to this very clever and fun storyteller. Um, and he, boy, was he ever charming. This is like 15 years ago, so it wasn't too long ago. Uh, but that kind of show, I love that kind of thing. Well, I saw that show, and I oh. think it's more than 15 years ago. Yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> um, I, but I saw the one in L.A. at the Henry Fonda Theater. There was probably about 800 people, and um, it was packed. And he actually got a credit on that VH1 Storyteller show because it was inspired, the show was inspired by that show of his. Oh, wow. Okay. And he also um, was, I don't know if you remember, but he was reading from his, what, what he called the uh, unauthorized autobiography. <laughs> I love that. And it was called X-Ray, X-Ray. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, it's, and if you, you want to read a great rock star autobiography, that's the one to read for me. Okay, we have one more clip from Ray Davies of the Kinks. Here Davies reveals the emotional background of one of his most original songs, Lola. Lots of, I don't know, it's, it's um, Freudian question. You know, and it's like repressed love, really. It's uh, that goes to show that everybody's not perfect, and you shouldn't condemn people being the way they are. And Lola's a love song. Okay, when you think about it, Lola was way ahead of its time, with the love story of an encounter between a guy and a trans person, a topic that is really only coming to the mainstream these days, like 50 years later. And Ray cuts to the quick when, in that answer, doesn't he, when he says, you shouldn't condemn people for being the way they are. It's so simple. And he you know, says it in that interview, which is probably from about you know, 48, 49 years ago, about a song that's 50 years old. That's just striking. Yeah. Lola, the kinks on Famous Lost Words. That does it for this week's show. Much more to come in the next few weeks, including Stevie Nicks, Steve Perry, Jennifer Lopez, The Beach Boys, Plus, Paul Stanley, yay! And Gene Simmons, boo, from KISS. Our show was produced by Adam Karsh, yay! Okay, I'm going to stop. Executive producer, Rob Farina. Oh, there's yay, too. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Join us next time on Famous Lost Words. <laughs>